You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 36 The More Things Change. What did you learn today? So would you say you're 80% or 90% self-taught in terms of audio? Yeah. And we would venture to say that most of us are self-taught more than what we learned in school by quite a bit, wouldn't you think? Speaking for myself, definitely. However, the schooling was a big part of my being able to learn on my own and that it gave me some fundamental systems or approaches to learning. Taught me how to search out information, uh, the use of a library, things that you learn intrinsically. Yeah, and these days, the search function is maybe the most important function on the Internet. Anything you want to learn, you go to that browser and you hit the search function and stuff comes up, information comes up. And I use the library and a librarian in much the same way. Right. It took a lot longer. Yeah. But yeah. the results were just as attainable, perhaps not as much information, because a library obviously doesn't contain the content of the uh, World Wide Web. Yeah. But now, excuse me, here, I have to have a sip of this. <laughs> what, sip of what, exactly? What are you drinking today? Must I tell you? Can I guess? Take a guess. Take a wild guess. I think it's going to be coffee. Yes. Maybe Hockley Valley coffee with a dash of turmeric in it, because uh, turmeric is really good for you. Then consider it in there. <laughs> It's HockleyValleyCoffee.com. That's where you get it. Oh, I see. Very cool. Very cool. Which wasn't around when I was a child. This dot-com stuff was not around. What was around was school. And in school, we made fun of each other like crazy. Mm -hmm. It was a different time back then. Mm -hmm. We had a girl in our classroom around grade seven or eight. Her name was Sally Featherstone. And she had the great misfortune of getting sick and throwing up in class ah. all over her desk and onto the floor. Oh. And mm-hmm. henceforth, she was known by everyone in the school as Sally Featherbarf. Featherbarf. And so was set up the long line or the basis for learning impediments. And neuroses. From day one, and neuroses from day one. And <laughs> we were cruel. We were cruel, we were cruel. yes. We were yeah. cruel kids, for sure. And perhaps you can recall this as well. Being in a classroom, and we're talking here in the early 60s primarily, Yeah. people were classified with names. You were a browner, you were a slacker, you were a math genius, you were any number of things. We put titles on people Yeah. without really understanding what made us tick. Mm-hmm. And I often think that the teachers then also didn't know what made us tick because they treated us all under the same kind of umbrella, a curriculum. They had a path to follow the way they were taught to teach and just assumed we were all very similar when really each and every student in that room had a different way of learning. And apparently there are eight different ways or basically eight different ways that we learn. Okay, you want to rhyme them off? Well, there's visual or spatial learners who prefer to see things when they're learning. They use maps, diagrams, charts, and so on. Mm-hmm. And common professions for these people are painters, sculptors, graphic artists, photographers, teachers. Verbal learners prefer the written and spoken word. Yeah. They usually have large vocabularies, and they usually can communicate in a clear and concise manner. Verbal learners are usually politicians, public speakers, debaters, journalists, and writers. Tactile learners... 
like to take things apart and put them back together again. Mm -hmm. They recognize patterns and follow kind of a logical process to see small parts in the big picture. They also make good problem solvers and look for systemic ways to solve things. You usually find these people in law enforcement, medicine, accounting, mathematics, and basically all branches of science. Then there are auditory learners. They appreciate sounds. Yeah. They enjoy lectures, music, and retaining information through the use of word association or mnemonics. Auditory learners uh, usually choose professions related to sound, becoming musicians, vocalists, broadcasters, conductors, and sound engineers. Okay. Kinesthetic or physical learners often learn with some part of their body. They have difficulty sitting still, and some teachers and parents may label them as uh, hyperactive. Right. They want to know how something works and like to touch things. Professions uh, in this field include occupational therapists, sports professionals, mechanics, construction workers, dancers, and actors. Solitary learners, as the name suggests, are people who prefer to learn alone. They find it's easier to concentrate without all the chatter that comes with learning in a group. They tend to be more introspective and self-aware, and they usually analyze things before they speak or put them on paper. Usually prefer self-employment or choose jobs that allow them to work away from co-workers, like professional writers, researchers, anything that allows them to work on their own. Yeah. There are also social learners, people that fill their world with personal interactions. Mm -hmm. Professions include uh, counseling, teaching, politics, sales, and human resource. Mm -hmm. And the naturalistic learner, and these types of learners usually process information when it's related to finding patterns in nature, love being outdoors, and they typically apply scientific reasoning to the understanding of living creatures. They usually grow up to be farmers, naturalists, or scientists. Yeah. In a nutshell, those are the eight basic ones. Right. This kind of stuff is relatively recent in educational theory, let's say. Mm -hmm. But very few educational systems, even contemporary ones, actually take account of all of those ways that children learn through. Yes. And so, as you said, we're all kind of treated the same. Stuck in a classroom, a box, stuck Mm -hmm. in these seats with one person at the top, at the front of the class, who is the expert, the authority, Mm -hmm. the person guiding the whole show. And there are numbers of alternative educational systems that have grown up in response to that model over the years. The Toronto School Board has a series of alternative schools. Mm -hmm. There's an Afrocentric school. There's all kinds of different arts-centric schools, which really focus on children's imagination and that sort of thing. And so, you know, one example of an alternative school system that I'm familiar with, because my godson graduated from it, is the Waldorf school system. And that was created back in the 1920s by Rudolf Steiner and his wife, Marie. And it's a very interesting system because it does treat the kids as individuals, it actually separates them into groups according to their, people are going to think this is woo-woo, astrological sign. Okay. And those signs have certain characteristics connected to them, and the children exemplify those, and they separate the kids into those kinds of groups because they found that works better, that they're able to relate better to each other. And not everybody would think that's woo-woo, but I give you that many would. They do things like keeping the child from learning how to write until a bit of a later age. Okay. So instead of writing the letter M, for example, 
They have the children dance the letter M ah. and the other letters, so they feel that letter in their bodies, so to speak, before they are abstracted from it by writing the letter M, because writing is an abstraction from the actual experience. Right? And they're also experiencing it with a lot of other senses that normally wouldn't be utilized. Totally. So what they're saying is we want the child to be fully incarnated, quote unquote, on the planet first Mm -hmm. before abstracting them from the world through writing and conceptualization and that sort of thing. And so my godson, Seth, graduated from that system. He's an incredible spirit, artistic, thoughtful, imaginative, Mm -hmm. intelligent, empathetic, artistic. Yeah, empathetic. Because that's one of the things that is lacking in the main school systems, I think, is teaching empathy, for example. Teaching life lessons in general. Life lessons. Yeah. How to feel, how to find compassion for another human being, Mm -hmm. accepting of differences. Now, it's coming around more and more because of the mixed nature of our culture with Mm -hmm. all the immigration and such. So schools are paying more attention to that for sure now. Yeah, because oftentimes we don't give a lot of weight to things like tolerance of other individuals, of other races, and that can impede the learning process because you're limiting our brain's ability to encapsulize many other things that are related to learning. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard hoping to pay. Some children need to kind of express their energy and get excited and and all that. And in our day, you weren't allowed to do that. You had to sit quietly with your hands crossed on your desk Mm -hmm. or you'd get a slap across the face. In my case, in Hebrew school, we had teachers who were violent people. A lot of people today wouldn't understand that. Oh, God, no. And that would, no. they would take them to jail, right. to prison, if they did that now. Mm-hmm. But we got slapped. We got our hands strapped. With, oh. and I recall this too, a leather strap that mm-hmm. barbers used to sharpen their utensils. <laughs> <laughs> it was no, School it was not a little tiny. Yeah, those, those straps hurt a full-grown man, <laughs> let alone a yeah. 10-year-old tell, child. And tell, me, tell us the story of you being a kid and wanting to put your hand up so often that what happened? Oh, you want to know that story? Yeah. yeah. As I recall, it was a Catholic school, and I was uh, in grade two at the time, and I began school with a kind of enthusiasm of sorts, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had a habit because other kids would want to answer a question. I was small, and the only way I could get attention was to raise myself a little bit out of my seat while I raised my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I guess I did that one too many times, and... I know this may sound crazy, but I was actually, uh, I think, as a gesture more than an actual total punishment, I was actually tied to my desk. <laughs> no. <laughs> Perhaps symbolically, and I'm not making this up, uh, not like I was chain and shackled, but, you know, I had this little rope tied around my waist connected to those wooden seats wow. that I don't know if you recall that lifted yeah. up and down when you went in to sit down. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... That was a way of taming me, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I was not an extreme case. Like you, I recall more violent situations. Yeah. Uh, the familiar three-foot yardstick, which came slapping on desktops. Yeah, like, thun- like lightning, like thunder. Lightning, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It scared the hell. The, the, Jesus the stand in the corner routine. Detentions. You know, face, face the wall. Yeah. Humiliated in front of your whole class. Yeah, uh, the dunce cap. The well, dunce not cap. in my time. That was no, earlier. Yeah, stuff. I didn't. I didn't know about the dunce cap, <laughs> but it was certainly the same kind of posture. Same idea. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, after yeah. class detentions, writing out lines. I will not talk in class. I will not do this. I will not do yeah. that. And you know, all the, the standard fare. Yeah, and the thing is that of the teachers that I remember, 
yeah. that affected me the most. They were the teachers who were the most individualistic. Mine too. The most unique and fun-loving yes. and allowing for levity and something different to enter into the classroom. I found that I learned a lot better when there was excitement, interest in music and oh, visuals me too. and film. And oh, film. Oh, those were the days that I waited for was sure. when I entered the classroom and I saw a film projector with the old eight millimeter film Yeah, because yeah, I knew yeah. that that's what we were going to be doing in that class. That's you know, right. No lectures. We're just going to actually be watching a film about dictators and about Hitler and yeah. whatever was going on that day. Well before computer screens. Yeah. It was also novel. I mean, that, that's what made it exciting as well. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't something you experienced every day. What we're saying here is that the alternative school approach is probably the best approach in a way because it takes into account the unique qualities of the individual child. Well, it certainly gives you another option. Exactly. Box, box. So, what's your story? I find that education, I think it don't matter where you go to school, Italy, America, Brazil, it's all the same. It's all just memorization. And it don't matter how long you can remember anything just so you can parrot it back for the test. And I got this idea for a school I would like to start. Something called the five-minute university. <laughs> and the idea is that in five minutes, you learn what the average college graduate remembers five years after he or she's out of school. You see, you don't have to waste your time with the conjugations, vocabulary, all that junk. You just forget it anyway, now what's the difference? <laughs> Economics, supply, and demand. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Business, businesses, you buy something and you sell it for more. <laughs> theology, I'm gonna have a theology department, you know, since I'm a priest, it's only right. And what you have to learn in theology is the answer to the question. Where is God? And the answer is, God is everywhere. <laughs> Why? Because he likes you. <laughs> That's kind of a combination of the Disney and Roman Catholic philosophies. <laughs> just, it's just a perfect for the late 70s or early 80s, you know? Just a perfect. Well, after the courses are all over, then it's a time for the final exams. I say to you, como esta usted? You say muy bien. Whereas God, the God is everywhere. Economics is supply and demand. Then I put on your cap and a gown. I get out to my Polaroid camera, you know, make a little snap a flash of picture for you. I give you the picture. You give me $20. I give you a diploma and your college graduate ready to go. But I'm pretty sure Right next door to the five-minute university, I might have opened up a little law school. <laughs> you know, you've got another minute? Box, box. There are other alternatives to alternative schools. For yes. example, taking your child out of school completely, which I really didn't know much about until recently when I was invited to teach chess to a group of homeschool kids ah. uh, through the library system in Alton. And so I've been with these kids now for two years 
every second week playing chess with them. And they're wonderful kids, just beautiful kids and very special. They are unique. There's something about them which is not typical of your normal school kid kids. So give me some of the qualities that you admire or enjoy. There's a kind of thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. about them sense of warmth. They're sort of more socialized in some ways, Interesting. these kids. Um, now, that's and, really interesting to me because a lot of people would often think that being in a classroom right, uh, is the way to be socialized. Is the way to be socialized. No, but they are socialized in the sense that their role models are their parents, not their peers so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, school peers can give you a lot of twisted ideas about how to socialize and be in, in the public domain. But mm-hmm. the parents are, are looking out for your best interests. and Not just parents, not to put them on a pedestal for any reason, but you have to kind of acknowledge from your experience that these are not typical everyday parents either. No, no, they're very special parents. To make that decision is a huge commitment and effort when you think about how many years you're going to be doing that with your child at home every day. Mm-hmm. Incredible challenge. And so very thoughtful, very committed parents are going to do that. And parents who really feel the school system isn't for their child somehow, they, for whatever reason. And in fairness, not every parent even wanting to can do that. No, of course not. I mean, it takes a lot of skill and energy. And knowledge in itself. And knowledge, because you're not just teaching them anything. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you have a certain sense of curriculum, obviously, as a parent teacher, but you can tailor it to your child. You don't have to rush them through a segment. For example, if they're not getting it, you can slow that down. And I can see a huge advantage in the fact that you know your children, or no one has had more exposure to them than you. That's right. So you get to understand their particular idiosyncrasies and what they respond and what they don't respond to. Yeah. That's right. So that's a very interesting Mm -hmm. choice that people can make. And I don't even know if a lot of people are that aware of making that choice or how to make that choice. So it's worth looking into if you're a parent who really thinks your child is not suited in one way or another to the normal school system. And I think probably there was a little bit more fluidity in the curriculum back in our days mm-hmm. than maybe now, where it's a bit more stringent because there are standardized tests across the province, for example, right. that students have to take. And so you have to teach these blocks of curricula to make sure these kids can pass their tests. So it becomes teaching in order to pass tests. And ultimately, it becomes teaching in order to create new consumers and workers for society. So education is something to push workers in rather than education as something that teaches the whole person about life. Create a more well-rounded individual who can adapt to whatever situation he confronts. I've learned this. Now, how can I adapt my learning to a variety of situations? Yeah, here's an example of that from a slightly different educational context. Okay. I studied martial arts for 15 years Mm -hmm. with the same teacher. So I was able to study how he taught for 15 years. And he would do just that. You'd learn something, a technique, let's say, deflect somebody's punch and then kick them or something like that. Counter. Counter with a kick. Let's mm-hmm. say you learn that. Mm-hmm. And you'd learn that. And then he'd take you outside and throw, he'd put you on a hillside with this steep angle. Right. And he'd say, now do it. And you'd discover how difficult it was to do this technique in a different environment. Or he'd take you to a swimming pool and say, we're going to do this technique in, in the water. water. Where there's and resistance. Let's say you do that in the water. How mm-hmm. are you going to adjust... So what he was teaching was fluidity yes. and getting the feel for the art. Adaptability. Not so much just the kata, the form. 
He didn't want our bodies to memorize and move in the same way by rote. He wanted our bodies to have a certain fluidity built in. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of how a teacher can really give his or her students that openness, that kind of wisdom of the body in this case. Mm-hmm. And also uh, you're doing many other things at the same time. You're demonstrating things making them aware of their environment, of the ground that they're standing on. You're teaching the effects of gravity, the effects of different angles. You're putting them in water. You're giving them Mm -hmm. another element. Yeah, and he would tailor his approach to us as kind of individuals. Like, for example, for some of us, he'd be kind of tough. He'd be kind of the tough love guy. Mm -hmm. 20 times push-up, let's go. And for someone else, you would sense that they needed a softer approach, a more flexible approach, and you'd have them try it uh, and maybe sit out this one if they were uncomfortable with it, whatever. So it was really interesting to see how he worked in that way. He didn't exist by blind rules. No, and there are other dojos I would go to and visit, and you'd see the instructor, and it would be like that. They would have to do the same kata over and over and over again without any sort of fluidity at all and just get it in their system. This is how mm-hmm. you do this kata. Mm-hmm. Whereas my instructor would come and he would stop us once we started and he'd say, wait, wait, just adjust your rear leg just a bit like this mm-hmm. because I see that you're doing this in the wrong angle. So if you just adjust this. And so what he would say was, it isn't that practice makes perfect. He would say, perfect practice makes perfect. Makes perfect. He was also giving you a level of personal attention. Yeah. He was saying to you, I'm watching and I care about how you perform. You're not just one of 30 people in a room that goes A to Z yeah. and I classify you all in one bunch. And, you know, I just realized that now that I inculcated that approach so that even the way I treat my writing has that in it. Because I will write something, I'll go, oh, that's cliche. I've done that before. Let's mm-hmm. not do the same thing over and over again. Let's mm-hmm. find a, a unique way of doing this, a more yeah. fluid way of yeah. expressing this idea. So even now, I just realized that right this moment, that that's something he gave to me as yes. a teacher. And there's also the scientific side of that, because the neuroplasticity of the brain, as we know, and all the synapses, all these experiences are expanding those synapses and connections. Mm-hmm. So the process is multifaceted. Yeah, I think proper education is the opening up of the human being, not the shutting down and the constricting of the human being. A friend who taught me right from wrong and weak from strong, that's a lot to learn. What does a good teacher really do? They motivate you. Yeah, and not just motivate you, but they teach you ways of how to think about the world that allows you to bring discernment and good judgment. Right. And then what happens is, now that we're living in the internet age, when we're given that, we apply it to what we learn ourselves, our self-teaching. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of self-teaching going on now that didn't really go on as much back then. Frankly, the access to information. Thanks to the technology and the internet and YouTube and all those things, I can dial up a YouTube video on anything I want and get some information and learn something I didn't know about it. That's exactly why I embraced technology, because it gave me that freedom. Mm-hmm. Then then there are teachers who are simply models in terms of doing what they do. And so mm-hmm. what I'm referring to here is an age-old way of learning, which is called an apprenticeship. Very, very early on, that's how we learned. We wanted to learn smithing. <laughs> we would find a smithy 
work with them and learn the trade mm-hmm. by assisting them, by doing all the dirty work, but watching them. And a practical modern-day example of that is my son, who graduated from the University of Waterloo in 2009 after studying civil engineering for five years. He was in an apprentice program, which I believe from the second year on, every four months he rotated. So he was four months in an apprenticeship program where he was being employed by someone in the field. He gained a variety of experience firsthand on the very subject that he was studying. And that did a number of things, including which it gave him an insight as much to what he wasn't interested in as what he was interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The employer also gained because he had these very young, energetic, capable workers that he could employ or she could employ at a much lower rate. And these people were also more prepared for the actual workplace. Yeah. And many of them had work opportunities when they graduated because of it. Mm-hmm. So it's called the co-op system. Co-op system. And it's there at the university level, and I think it's also there at the high school level now, too, in different ways. More and more people you... are attempting to bring that in. I think it's a wonderful way to educate because, as I said, post-secondary education, to me, it's just as important to know what you don't want to do right, as it is what you do want to pursue. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed about people is we're told as writers, for example, write what you know. I hear that a lot in writing groups. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's write what you don't know, because you're going to learn something about an area you've never approached before. So every now and then, I'll pick up a book about something I know nothing about, even though I'm not used to reading that stuff, and, Mm -hmm. and try to read it just because it's something I would naturally shy away from. Yes. But there may be something of value in it, and I should give it a chance. What you're talking about is also personal growth and development. Yeah. The old model, which you described as talk about something that you do know, says keep focusing on what you know because that's what's going to put food on your table. Sure. It's the competitive side of things. Right. You know, you better be good at what you do because there's other people hunting for the same spot. And that's what alternative education mitigates against is yes. this competitive thing as well, where your marks are everything. It's all about marks mm-hmm. and metrics and standardized tests and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Standardizing everything is putting everybody in the same kind of frame. And as far as self-teaching is concerned, I've probably self-taught my Myself more than anything I've ever learned in school. Photography, theater, all the stuff I did in theater, my writing has all been self-taught. I didn't go to school and study literature, English literature, and that sort of creative writing. I just did that on my own. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So a lot of my life I've been self-taught in different ways. And working with people who know what they're doing and sort of apprenticing at the same time, seeking out those individuals and also spotting them when they come into your life and going, hey, would you like to teach me that, that thing you do? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what we're saying in this little convo is that alternative education, A, opens the human being up to new ideas, keeps them fluid and gives Mm -hmm. them this way of discerning stuff that's authentic from stuff that's inauthentic, right? Mm -hmm. And our humanness. Our humanness in particular is the ultimate goal of education is to let us feel our humanness fully because self-understanding is the ultimate goal of education. It's not to get a job or to impress your family. (laughs) It's really to understand who we are as people 
And that's what we're shooting for when we talk about right. alternative. And the thing is about balance because you don't want to negate the practical aspects of living because people do have to earn a living. People have to do things. It's not about making it one or the other. It's about amalgamating the two yeah, sure. and giving someone a more fulfilling perspective because how we feel is a lot of how we decide. That's right. Wake up all the teachers, time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. They're the ones who's coming up and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children to jump the very best you can. Oh, the Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.